1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we gently massage weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. Welcome to our new Sydney listeners. On this edition we'll feature the world's oldest chip tunes and the last dose of syphilis. But first up, here's the news. <laughs> A new device has been developed to stop migraines in their tracks. People who suffer migraine headache attacks are often warned an attack is coming by an aura of symptoms that can include flashing lights, showers of shooting stars, zigzagging lines, weakness, tingling or confusion. The non-invasive transcranial magnetic stimulator, TMS, device interrupts the aura phase of the migraine which is often described as electrical storms in the brain, before the aura leads to headaches. The aura is usually followed by an intense throbbing head pain, nausea, and vomiting. However, if you zap the aura, you can stop the headache arriving. Previous studies, conducted at Ohio State University, used a huge and heavy TMS device to reduce headache pain. The new device is handheld. The TMS device sends a strong electric current through a metal coil, which creates an intense magnetic field for about one millisecond. This magnetic pulse, when held against a person's head, creates an electric current in the neurons of the brain, interrupting the aura before it results in a throbbing headache. Unlike drugs, TMS has no recorded side effects. Of the 164 patients involved in the multicenter, randomized clinical trial receiving TMS treatment, 39% were pain-free at the two-hour post-treatment point, compared to 22% in the placebo group receiving sham pulses. There were no differences related to adverse reactions between the placebo group and the real group. It was previously believed that migraine headaches start with vascular constriction, which results in the aura, followed by vascular dilation that will lead to a throbbing headache. However, in the late 1990s, it was suggested that neuronal electrical hyperexcitability resulted in a throbbing headache. This new understanding of the migraine mechanism helped the development of a handheld TMS device by Neuralive in Sunnyvale, California. TMS has been researched for therapy in a whole range of brain-based illness and symptoms, so a pocket version may eventually help many people. See-through rechargeable batteries made of flexible plastic have been invented at Waseda University in Japan. The battery is made from a reduction-oxidation active organic polymer film that's only 200 nanometers thick. Nitroxide radical groups are attached which act as charge carriers. The organic radical battery has a high charge discharge capacity which means it only takes one minute to fully charge the battery and it has a long cycle life, often exceeding a thousand recharges. The team made the thin polymer film by a solution processable method, that is, a soluble polymer with the radical groups attached, is spin-coated onto a surface. After being bathed in ultraviolet light, the polymer then becomes cross-linked with the help of a bisacide cross-linking agent. A problem with the organic radical polymers is the fact that they're soluble in the electrolyte solution, which results in self-discharging of the battery. But the polymer must be soluble so it can be spin-coated. However, the photo cross-linking method used by the Japanese team overcomes this problem and makes the polymer mechanically tough. A transparent rechargeable battery is a natural choice to be paired with solar power collectors and mobile computer displays. The world's oldest chip tunes unearthed in Australia. The oldest recordings of computer-generated music were made by the CSIR Mark I in 1951. CSIR stands for Commonwealth Scientific Research. CSIR Mark I was built with a speaker so that programmers could get a signal that their program loop had finished and for program errors and debugging. Hackers found that by sending multiple passes to the hooter, as the speaker was known, they could generate musical tones. It was complicated programming. Until, in 1957, Professor Thomas Cherry of the University of Melbourne wrote software to convert musical notation into pulses to the CSIR Mark I hooter. Now simple musical notation could be entered and something resembling music would come out. There was no way to store the music other than the punched paper tape required to make the computer to play it. At the University of Melbourne, three engineers who were familiar with the CSIR Mark I in the 1950s have worked together on a project to document the old computer and to reconstruct the music. They wrote a software emulator so that the old programs could be run again and then built hardware for the pulses to be sent to the speakers so that they sounded like the original device. The first had to read the program and data tapes and then used programs developed by John Spencer for his emulator to join the speaker pulse timing data. Next they built hardware using vacuum tube technology to reproduce the pulse shapes that appeared at the speaker terminals. And combine these to reproduce the pulse stream. This pulse stream could then be played through the original speaker and recorded at last. The first song is Colonel Bogey. This next song is titled In Cellar Cool and includes a simulation of the background noises you would have heard in the laboratory. This is a simulation accurate to within 1% of the sounds first heard at that live, public performance in 1951. Big thanks to Sydney indie band Unicron's Revenge, who sent us their debut album, The Transforming, with the wonderful song, Pie Man.
3: That the end of the world is nigh Do you call when you need Reliable and constant results Do you call when you need to know The circumference of a circle In relation to its diameter Who do you call never-ending. You'll appreciate this infinitely. You know you can't do beta than the alpha and omega. Don't move one iota or he'll cap a pot in your ass. He's so cultured. He regularly goes to the beta. It's a sign Cause he knows how to log a 10 Set is for the C, Ryan Mindset X81 pie Man Whoa. He's a rat- Power is never ending. Just pick up the phone and dial. Just pick up the phone and dial. 3.14159265358979323846264338327950288845. One nine seven, one six nine, three nine nine, three seven five, one and five.
1: Hi Man from the Transforming by Unicron's Revenge. If you have a great geeky science tune for us, send it in. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network.
2: Next up, John August tells us about the Australian history of syphilis. As a venereal disease, the associations of syphilis meant that while it was a word with a known meaning, it was known in polite society as the specific disease, the social disease, the red plague, or even the social evil. In Melbourne, the Argus newspaper agreed to publish articles about the campaign against the disease and call it by name, syphilis. This was in August 1911, and it's believed it was the first time when the word was used in a publication outside of medicine. Concern was growing about syphilis, and alliances between clerics and doctors were developing. It was a new age of enlightenment where people were able to talk more openly about sexual behaviour. During the First World War, as part of the growing campaign against syphilis, Eugene Brieux's play, Damaged Goods, was performed in Melbourne and Sydney. It had been publicly performed in France in 1902, but was banned in 1905. Censorship in Australia, as part of this growing time of enlightenment, acted in reverse to what we're used to, a play banned overseas, was performed here. It tells the story of a man who marries against his doctor's advice, rather than waiting until his syphilitic infection has been cured. A child is born with the signs of congenital syphilis, that is, syphilis acquired during pregnancy. The father of the bride exhorts the doctor to reveal whether his daughter's husband had syphilis so he might have grounds for divorce. The doctor refuses. As the father becomes more and more enraged, the doctor's reply is that the only difference between the father and his daughter's husband is that the father had been lucky in his youthful sexual encounters. Certainly syphilis was something to be concerned about. Nevertheless, it fed into more than just moral concerns, but also eugenic and racist ideas about able citizens being outnumbered by less able citizens and the yellow peril. Some estimates of its prevalence in the population are now considered to be gross overstatements. They seem to have resulted from the moral panic at the time. But sufferers were discriminated against for at least some of recent history. The wealthy were able to enlist the services of private doctors. Friendly societies and charitable hospitals, however, saw the diseases self-inflicted and therefore not fit for their services, and into the mix were quacks taking out advertisements promoting their remedies for secret diseases and private complaints. Those doctors who specialized in such complaints offered back entrances, as did the clinics they grew into, which had separate back entrances for men and women. These days, however, sexual health clinics do not have such entrances. Looking at syphilis more broadly, It had some analogies to HIV. For a time, it was untreatable or very difficult to treat, and controversy developed when treatment became effective. Salvasin, an early effective drug, had its own scandals, where opportunists stockpiled it and sold it later at inflated prices, with the original holder of the patent overstating difficulties in producing the drug so they could charge higher prices. With the onset of World War I, the patents were ignored, and England, Canada, the United States and France made their own generic versions. I've not been able to ascertain whether the payments came back into force after the war, but certainly there's an echo of the controversy over HIV treatments. This brings me to the end of this part. In the next part I'll be interviewing Professor Christopher Fairley of the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic on the contemporary significance of syphilis.
4: Until relatively recently it was exceedingly rare. In fact, Victoria, with a population of 6 million people prior to about 2002, only had two cases of recently acquired syphilis per year. So that's an extraordinarily low level. However, in 2002, an an epidemic started not just here in Melbourne, but really throughout most industrialised cities throughout the world. And the epidemic was fundamentally restricted to men who have sex with men. At the moment, we have a large number of cases of syphilis in Victoria, probably three to four hundred almost entirely restricted to men who have sex with men. Amongst the, uh, the group of those who have the most number of sexual partners, the, the rate might even be as high as 2 or 3% per year.
0: What was the origin of those new infections in times past? Why, why has the situation changed?
4: Well, if I, I can just take you for a few minutes through the sort of history of syphilis. Prior to antibiotics in the 1930s, it used to be very common then antibiotics came along and there was a dramatic fall in cases of syphilis. And then through the sort of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s with the sexual revolution, you saw re amongst men who have sex with men. And then with the onset of the HIV epidemic in the early 1980s, it disappeared again. And it recurred in 2002 all over the world, beginning at those cities which typically have a large number of men have sex with men in them, such as London and San Francisco. And the reason that its come back is complex, because it was absent for such a long time, we suspect a major factor that's driving the epidemic at the moment is the fact that not only do people who become infected find it difficult to recognize because they've never heard of it or seen of it because it was absent for so long. A, a large number of the practitioners that look after patients with syphilis themselves haven't seen it before and struggle to recognise it quickly and so it persists without treatment for a reasonable length of time. There's also been increasing numbers of sexual partners amongst men of sex with men that, that has probably played a role as well. With the improving survival and ease of treatment of HIV, not so for men of sex with men to have sex, and so you're seeing a greater number of sexual partners. This doesn't necessarily mean they're having unprotected anal sex at all because the majority of cases of syphilis are not transmitted through anal sex. They're transmitted through oral sex or even just hand genital contact because syphilis in in certain stages is highly infectious.
0: Right, so when it's highly infectious, um, what what, what stages are you talking about there?
4: Well, there's, there's primary where typically there's one lesion present, usually about half a centimetre or so, and are typically a painless ulcer. But then there's secondary syphilis, which happens some weeks later, where an individual can get a rash. And that particular rash can be highly infectious because each little red dot has a large number of infectious syphilis organisms in it. That may be particularly a problem because that's hard for clinicians to recognise, particularly if they haven't seen it before, and can persist for many weeks.
0: So you're saying that the rash of the secondary syphilis is is in fact quite infectious?
4: And and in a way, there are so many different causes of rashes that sometimes people don't rush to the healthcare provider or recognise that it might be something serious. And and sometimes the healthcare provider, particularly if they're under 40, will have never seen a case of syphilis before.
0: I I guess this is a more subtle question, but obviously there's a dormant phase between uh, secondary and tertiary syphilis. Now, is it possible to pass syphilis on during that during that time, or, or is it like dormant in the sense that it's very dormant and also the patient's not infectious either?
4: So syphilis can run for many years. It has an early phase termed infectious, which includes primary and secondary syphilis, which almost always lasts less than about a year or so, and then there is tertiary syphilis, which occurs many years later give you very serious complications, such as diseases of the heart and of, of the brain. But that particular form of syphilis, termed latent or late tertiary syphilis, is not infectious. Well, there's a period of latency where, where you have no disease in the individual infected, and they're also non-infectious, and that period of time can last a
0: few years to decades. I'm thinking of metaphors from other areas. You know, one of the things that I have some acquaintance with is the idea of financial crashes and, you know, asset price bubbles. And I know this is going a bit far, but one thing a lot of people say is the reason why we have asset price bubbles and crashes is because there's a new generation of people who have forgotten what happened last time.
4: Well, I think the absence of syphilis or nearly 20 years or longer, meant that there's a generation of medical graduates who haven't seen it. But I think we should see that more as an opportunity for control. In other words, providing the young gay men who have not seen it before or the practitioners with education provides a relatively easy method for control because you can reduce that period of infectiousness quite markedly because it's relatively easy to treat.
0: I take it one of the things that you are doing is, I guess, outreach and education to doctors to make uh, more people aware of it.
4: Well, I think that governments have been quite responsive in this particular area. The details of that you'll have to ask the government, but, for example, on our webpage one of the first things that you see when you go is a series of about 10 different pictures of what syphilis looks like so that practitioners have got a very good idea about what it looks like
0: outside of sexually transmitted infections are there any diseases of concern that that are sort of i guess growing in prevalence
4: one of the infections on the horizon that uh, people have put a lot of work into preparing for is obviously bird flu but so you know throughout history there are examples where you get changes in particular viruses that allow them to spread or you get changes in human behavior that allow them to I think SARS was a good example of that. Certainly a lot more people travel by aeroplane now than they did 50 years ago, so there wouldn't have been the capacity for infections to travel so rapidly. And indeed, syphilis is a good example because in the 1400s or 1500s, it travelled relatively slowly across Europe because people didn't move very rapidly. But, but of course now, you can get around the world in 24 hours, spread of sexually transmitted infections, much more rapidly than you did centuries ago as well.
0: Okay, and I suppose you you have to some degree already answered the question of the international scene, that, that these epidemics have arisen around the world at roughly the same time.
4: Well, I think there's, there's two things there. I think that's certainly true for men who have sex with men, but the control of syphilis is fundamentally dependent on access to healthcare. As quickly as possible, after infection occurs. So so you get a lot of syphilis amongst heterosexuals in countries where access to health care is limited. So, so throughout the developing world, there are very high rates of syphilis because of limited access to healthcare in heterosexuals. The reason we notice it so much in countries with access to health care is because we don't see it in heterosexuals, we only see it in men and sex with men. We don't have good control of syphilis in very remote indigenous Aboriginal communities. The fundamental reason for that is that access to health care in, in Aboriginal communities is limited. And so you do get some heterosexual transmission of syphilis that's not seen elsewhere in Australia in isolated Indigenous communities.
2: In closing, I'll acknowledge references and helps I've received. A major reference was Wikipedia. An article by Di Tibbetts, Reflections on Syphilis, was published in Recent Advances in Microbiology in 2002, a publication of the Australian Society for Microbiology and I was kind enough to reply to a few emails. B. Nicholson, N. Lloyd, H. Morgan, and R. Ronimus formed part of a research team in the Departments of Chemistry and Biological Sciences at the University of Waikato, New Zealand, and published an article on self in Angawante, Chemie in 2005. Brian Nicholson of that same team was kind enough to reply to some emails where he pointed out another article of interest on salvarsan by Stephen Rethmiller published in Chemotherapy in 2005. In the course of this feature, I've asked some difficult questions and tried to make my own best sense of things, but could have incorporated a few mistakes and probably made some errors in pronunciation, which I acknowledge. Thanks for listening, and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you, John August.
1: All from us in this edition of Diffusion. Please contact us, send us some email with feedbacks, comments, or suggestions. Send us praise, send us insults, just send us something. Send an email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. And subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program, John August. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.